Welcome back to another episode of the Hungry Takes podcast live on a Thursday night with Joe and Matt. Matt, we're nearing the end of April and for the first time in about three years, the NBA playoffs is on its regular schedules. We have that semblance of normalcy. Uh, we're two weeks into the Major League Baseball season. We've got the NFL draft one week from tonight in prime time on ESPN. So what a time for a sports fan. Yeah, and, you know, predominantly basketball-focused right now. We're at that part of the year where we, we kind of cancel out all the noise that's going on and get real hyper-focused on basketball between March Madness and now the NBA. But like you said, MLB, it's out there. It exists. It definitely, definitely more than exists. But speaking of madness with March, you know, in a few minutes, I definitely want to talk about the madness that was revealed last night with the shocking retirement of Villanova head coach and Hall of Famer Jay Wright. But first, let's tip off with some basketball in the realm of the NBA playoffs. And Matt, I think we're two or three games in and a lot of these series uh, kind of, you know, trying to figure out where things stand as far as who has a chance, who's the pretender, who's the real contender. I just want to open up the door first and foremost by asking you about your impression of the playoffs at this point. So, you know, my thoughts are that the West is pretty much the Warriors and Phoenix, right? So Phoenix ultimately walks to the finals. Uh, They got to beat the Warriors at some point, but I think, just based on age and, and youth alone, I think Phoenix can probably outplay Warriors in their current composition. And then the East, Joe, to me, is where the storyline really is. I mean, the Nets are down 0-2 right now. Uh, I mean, you got Embiid doing what he does in the playoffs, albeit against Toronto. And you got these pesky Heat that, uh, although I believe they have an easy draw this round, uh, look really good as the number one seed. Well, I want to start out west because you referenced uh, Phoenix and the Warriors as the two real, true, viable challengers in that conference. Like, I don't really have that much confidence in Utah. Dallas, you know, has the injury to Doncic. Hopefully he can come back, but still some question marks about his health and also the supporting cast outside of uh, Dinwiddie and uh, Jalen Brunson. But specifically, though, I want to start with Phoenix. And does the news and the latest with Devin Booker uh, projected to miss some time with the injury sustained uh, this week. Does that make you concerned about Phoenix's chances to make the finals? You know, Joe, it's funny that we started off talking on this podcast about tornadoes and games, right? Because if you know anything about the weather channel, they have a weathercaster called, I think his name's like Joe Cantori or something like that, and they call him the Black Angel of Death. Because wherever he's at, that's where the F5 tornado is going to be. That's where uh, Hurricane of 5 is going to be. He is the kiss of death. Joe, Chris Paul, is Chris Paul the kiss of death? I mean, he was hurt in the finals last year. Hurt his hamstring when he was in Houston. Now Devin Booker has the hamstring. And it just it is wild to me because when Chris Paul's involved, someone uber important gets hurt. And it's never a sprained ankle. It's some kind of nagging injury, like a soft tissue, like a hamstring that doesn't get better, like a blown AC, uh, ACL, a blown Achilles. Like, it never fails. Right. And you think about how the narrative previously with his career prior to 2018 when the Rockets made it to the Western Conference Finals and almost defeated the Warriors, you know, had the 
injury to Paul that really uh, did them in at the end. But prior to that, let's not forget, for so many years, the narrative surrounding Chris Paul was that he could not get to the conference finals. You know, we kind of uh, tend to focus that narrative more on the Clippers as a franchise and how it took them so long to finally break through last year and make it to the conference finals. But really, this is something that started out for Chris Paul, and it lasted for basically over a decade to start his career. Yeah, no, it did. And yeah, I've thought since coming to Phoenix, like he was a shoe in to win a title. And so when I read today that Devin Booker has this soft injury, kind of hamstring, uh, nagging type injury, it's just like I, I really think Chris Paul is cursed. And it, it's just never going to be to the point, Joe. He's like the opposite of Rajon Rondo, right? With Rondo, you don't really want him for the regular season. You'd love to have him for the playoffs. Paul's the opposite. We'll give you Chris Paul for the regular season. Just get him out of here when the postseason comes. Maybe he should go by the name Cliff Paul for the postseason. Yeah, do something. Change it up. Go go, Meta World Peace. Change your name or something. I don't know. I hear you. I hear you. Well, the last thing I'll ask you about the Suns, um, how are they going to fare against the Pelicans? I mean, any chance the Pelicans could use this kind of upstart momentum to pull off an upset, or you still think Phoenix will be okay in this series? I mean, so the series 1-1 right now, right? And uh, the Pelicans have a whole lot of Louisiana love. I mean, they are clearly the underdog in this one. But, the, I mean, they play scrappy. Brandon Ingram's a beast. You got C.J. McCollum. I'm not going to tell you that they're going to win. Clearly they're not. But they could push Phoenix a few games past their comfort zone, especially if Devin Booker's injured. Yeah, I would concur with that perspective. I think that this series is probably going six at this point. I think that Phoenix will probably win one game in New Orleans, but I think that New Orleans will defend home court and at least get one game with that raucous crowd you know, excited to have a playoff game in that environment at the Smoothie King Center and actually have a good friend uh, from our uh, area in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, who will be there uh, for game four on Sunday night. So I know he's really excited about that. So that's one series with the 1-8 matchup. The other series I wanted to concentrate on out west, Matt, you talked about the Warriors and just I think everybody's takeaway watching them in two games is kind of twofold. It's like, first and foremost, Curry, Thompson, those guys look like they haven't missed a beat in the playoffs. Uh, kind of surprising, pleasantly surprised for Curry uh, coming off the injury and missing a month of the regular season at the end and kind of you know being reinserted on the fly in the playoffs. But then the second thing is just the emergence of Jordan Poole. And I saw a headline today about how his rise to potential stardom kind of opens the door even more for the championship window or possibilities for contention for the Warriors uh, even this year and going forward. And so I just want kind of your perspective on what we've seen from Golden State. Yeah, I, I think the story with Golden State is they have this veteran championship pedigree. Of course, Steve Kerr's adorned at this point his career with golden rings, right, with as many as he – he's almost like the Phil Jackson level at this point, right? And so I, I think – they're, they have all these veterans, they have all these experiences which translate into really good playoff basketball. What they don't have in this core of three or four guys is youth, right? And so, yes, maybe it gets it done this year. They can kind of stumble into the finals, but they really have to start su succession planning because you've got people like 
uh, the Memphis Grizzlies, the Timberwolves, filled with young guys, even Phoenix for that matter, the Pelicans, all of these teams younger than Golden State. And whereas that's really important that it, that experience translate over the playoffs, at the end of the day, the lesson that the Lakers taught us this year more than any other year is you cannot replace young legs. And so I do think the Warriors have to start thinking about that. And as you go deeper in the playoffs, you may start to see that from this team that they're just a little bit older. Their legs are not as uh, young and sprite as some of these other teams. Well, I do think that that's where Jordan Poole really helps a lot because, you know, he's a young guy that's, what, in his third year, I think, from Michigan. He was a star in the NCAA tournament a few years ago, hit a buzzer beater against Houston. That's the first time I think a lot of people had really heard of him. And he's just, uh, you know, kind of quietly led the league in free throw shooting this year, even had a better percentage from the free throw line than Steph Curry. And he's also displayed, you know, the ability – to be a prolific three-point shooter. And the last thing I'll say about him, Matt, I think I said this the other night. I was listening to somebody's cast on ColorCast. It might have been Patrick's. And I, I commented, you know, that somebody out there in the NBA, if they haven't already, they've got to start working these puns. You have Jordan Poole playing with the Splash Brothers. I mean, we're really missing the beat here if we're not doing that. We're burying the lead, Joe. That's what we're doing. If you're not talking about that kind of stuff, that that was dynamite right there. I love what you did. That's that's incredible. Well, you're over there with the golden rings for Golden State, so you give yourself some credit, there, too. There you go. And other golden rings of my interest are McDonald's, or everybody knows that. No, I mean, look, you're, you're right about Jordan Poole. There is youth. Like, don't misunderstand me. There's youth on the Warriors. You just haven't seen it really impact. Like, for example, you got Weissman. Uh, like you said, Jordan Poole is coming along. You've got Kaminga, who is uh, pretty incredible. Uh, I, I mean, Andrew Wiggins, which I feel like the story's kind of written on Andrew Wiggins, although slowly he gets better year by year, very slowly. So I, I'm just saying, I think the Splash Brothers, Draymond Green, I think it can hang tough for another season or two. You know, and be a viable NBA championship team. But I think at a certain level, they have to have those younger legs, like a Jordan Poole, like a Wiseman, really take over and, and give them kind of the athleticism that the Splash Brothers and Draymond Green uh, don't have, and for Draymond Green, ever had. Without a doubt. And I think that, you know, the development of Kaminga and getting Wiseman back healthy in the coming years, that's also paramount as well. But if the Warriors can make, you know, another run this year, maybe get to the NBA Finals, potentially, you know, who would they play? And Matt, the last NBA topic I want to talk about before we transition to some other sports topics on the show, you look at the Eastern Conference and you got three or four teams where it's hard for me to pick between them. Like if you told me that the Celtics, if you told me that the Bucks, if you told me that the Heat, if you told me that the 76ers, any of those four teams, if you told me that that team won the Eastern Conference, I wouldn't be that surprised. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the Bucks to me, have a really tough matchup with Chicago right now. I mean, series is 1-1, right, tied. But I really just like what Chicago's doing. That's another one of those situations where you have these young upstarts that can just play a very fast place. Uh, fast-paced uh, game, whereas Bucks now have that veteran experience. I think the 76ers, to me, are my favorites, even though 
I mean, I'm definitely not cutting out, uh, can, counting out Jimmy Butler because to me, you know, it's almost like Kobe Bryant. Like you never count him out. He's got the heart of a champion. But the story, Joe, is this Nets team, right? With Ben Simmons still hanging out on the bench, Kyrie Irving, who might be like the greatest one-on-one basketball player ever, and then Kevin Durant, who are down 0-2 right now to the Boston Celtics. Well, you know, I texted you Sunday immediately following that heartbreaking loss for the Nets when Jason Tatum and the Celtics hit the buzzer beer. And I told you I predicted that I don't see the Nets coming back from this. I really felt like they needed that game, the way they lost that game. I know that they came out hot last night, but I just didn't think they'd be able to recover through a series with an emotional loss and a gut punch like that in game one. And the other side of it, too, is this, Matt. Yeah, we're going to hype up the Nets. You had a lot of people kind of looking them as, at them as a trendy uh, pick to even make a run in the Eastern Conference Finals. But I've said on the show many times, I've been on record saying that there is just not much of a precedent for a lower-seeded team to make it to the NBA Finals in playoff history. With the exception of a few examples, like in 1999 with the Knicks being the eight seed or uh, with the uh, – Houston Rockets, I think, were a sixth seed the year they traded for Clyde Drexler and yet the Heat. Um, a couple of years ago in the bubble, they were a five seed and made it to the finals. Like, with the exception of some type of fluky circumstance, there's just not a precedent for a team that's seeded like fifth or lower much to make it to the finals. It's just such a tough road, literally, to have to win three playoff rounds to make it to the finals. And so I just never was sold on the Nets having much of a chance. And at this point, I mean, the, the Celtics are just in complete control. Yeah, they are. And, and, you know, going with Zach Cantrell's point here, he says Sixers or Celtics, at least one will be in the Eastern Conference Finals book. And I agree. I think it's the Sixers there because at the end of the day, I think Joel Embiid's MVP guy, uh, James Harden, if he shows up in big moments, which he never does, he's still a scoring threat. Uh, so to me, the Sixers make it to the Eastern Conference Finals because, and where I'm going with this, is I don't really believe in the Celtics. Like, I think the Celtics play a nice, scrappy, defense-oriented game of basketball. They were streaky towards the end of the season, which is great going into the playoffs. But I'm not really buying them as championship caliber. What I am buying is that the Nets have this disoriented team that has not played together all season. And they don't really know who is supposed to control the game, right? Do you give it up to Kevin Durant to make the last second shot? Or with 10 seconds left, do you let Kyrie Irving dribble it into no man's land and try to heave up a shot? You know. And I think the problem with the Nets is that there's no continuity there. They played without Kyrie a whole season. They played with Kevin Durant injured more than half the season. They got rid of James Harden. You've got Simmons sitting on the bench right now point there is I think the Celtics are beating a team that is not playoff caliber even though the roster says that it is well let me ask you this about Philadelphia are you nervous about the Doc Rivers element you know with his history of blowing these uh playoff series leads in later rounds oh yeah don't get me wrong don't get me wrong like the 76ers are not going to win a championship Okay, and you know my hatred for Doc Rivers, who ruined my favorite team outside of the Chicago Bulls with Michael Jordan, and that was that was the uh, the early two thousands Boston Celtics. You know I can't stand Doc Rivers. When you get to that game 
where it becomes very strategic X's and O's. One coach has got to outcoach the other. Doc Rivers is going down. So you can kind of pencil that in that when they have to play the Bucks, when they have to play the Heat, there is no way that Doc Rivers is going to beat those teams because he is just not that good of a coach. The something's got to give finals would be if hypothetically, because hypothetically it's probably not going to happen, if you had the 76ers against the Suns, Chris Paul against Doc Rivers. Yeah, that would that would be interesting because, like, at a certain point, like, who do you bet on, right? Like, somebody's getting paid if you bet against them because they both have such a storied career of not being able to win games that matter. But I, I agree, like, that would be interesting to see because here are two guys that just have never really been able to get it done. Someone's got to win. So, uh, yeah, that would be an interesting matchup. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, that's one reason I enjoyed in baseball so much, the Chicago, um, um, Chicago-Cleveland World Series six years ago, because I was like, something's got to give. One of these teams is going to win a championship for the first time in forever. And I just love those kind of matchups. So hopefully, you know, we'll see something like that. So, Matt, uh, one more story about basketball. You know, we've had uh, great extensive coverage there of the NBA, but we, of course, had the just shocking news last night in college basketball on the men's side that Jay Wright has retired from Villanova very uh, abruptly, very surprising. How stunned were you by this news? Joe, it was two or three weeks ago that we were talking about how Jay Wright was going to be the changing of the guard with Coach K and how if they were able to win a championship uh, this season with Coach K leaving, that he would naturally have that torch past him. So I am absolutely flabbergasted. Uh, Honestly, I I don't even know what to think. Yeah, I mean, I really thought that he had another 10 or 15 years minimum remaining in his career. I think he just turned 60 years old. And, I mean, to put it in perspective, Coach K retired at the age of 75. And so I thought, really, that Jay Wright was a guy, you know, that's healthy and young and vibrant, you know, even for his age. And I thought that he was going to ride the wave of momentum that he got making it to the Final Four this year. I just saw no indication, Matt, in the Final Four that this was his last dance of retirement in retirement tour and just how ironic is it you know you see coach k retire he has the retirement tour you see jay wright retire and there's just no pop in circumstance no it, it, there's more to this like we haven't heard from jay wright yet so that leads me to believe there's more to it whether his wife is sick whether he's sick i, I know just through the history of jay wright I, you know just always watching him on tv it's always struck me as he is a guy that looks younger than he really is, yeah. right? So, I, you know, I always looked at Jay Wright at Villanova, and I was like, oh, okay, this is like a relatively new coach. He's like in his 40s. He's a new coach. No, no, no. He's in his 50s, late 50s, 60s, right? And so, I, you know, I'm thinking that there could be a health issue there, maybe uh, Urban Meyer, quote-unquote Urban Meyer type, like my heart, I have a problem with my heart, maybe an issue like that. Or, Joe, you saw, you see Frank Vogel about to lose his job with the L.A. Lakers. Maybe it's a play to get Jay Wright to the NBA. 
or maybe even uh, to the like uh, president, general manager of a, uh, an NBA team. I think there's something more going on here. I just don't know what it is. Well, two thoughts there. So I have a friend um, that I went to law school with who was actually a Villanova fan and alumnus. Uh, he went to undergrad there, and he tweeted last night that to him it felt very Tom Brady-esque in the sense that he doesn't think we've heard the last from Jay Wright and to your point, he may resurface somewhere else in the NBA or the professional ranks. So definitely something to monitor there. But as far as like a rationale or reason or potential justification for this surprise retirement, I was uh, listening to another podcast uh, today and they um, hypothesized that with the changing landscape of the transfer portal in the NIL market, that a lot of these coaches are just going to get exhausted with just constantly having to recruit their team and the roster turnover. And they uh, predicted that you're going to see more and more coaches retire earlier in this, uh, you know, coaching into your seventies is going to be more of a thing of the past. Yeah, I, I think so, Joe. Like I was reading a very interesting article. So uh, this is going off topic here necessarily, but uh, for all of our listeners out there, Dabo Sweeney, the head coach of Clemson football, does not use the transfer portal, right? And I was reading an article, uh, an interview with him, and basically he was just saying how dangerous the transfer portal is and how this NIL stuff has changed the landscape of uh, college sports that, yes, it's been instituted, but the NCAA hasn't really put any rules around this NIL stuff, right? And then you mix that with kind of the free agency that is uh, the transfer portal, and it's just like, what the heck is going on in college sports? To your point, right, just about what the transfer portal does, basically what Dabo Sweeney was saying is that, you know, you have teams that just get their bare bones and then they wait to go in and grab whoever they want in that transfer portal. So it makes it that much harder in coaching, you know, to to not only stay on the recruiting trail, but you spend all that time recruiting guys, then you turn around and lose them in their second year because of that transfer portal. And kind of to go full circle here, Dabo Sweeney's point was, he made a good one, he said, look, if I, I don't use transfer portal players, he says, because if I use transfer portal players, what is that saying to the guys who are second and third string? It's saying, I don't believe in you, and our team is not good enough, right? And so he says, we do our transfer portal during recruiting. We go after the guys we want, and we never touch the transfer portal because that shows that we did not do our recruiting job good enough. My point to saying all this is, Maybe there's some added pressure that we don't know about where guys like Coach K are getting out, even though they're in good health. Jay Wright getting out, even though he's in great health. There's something to it. I think it's definitely a factor. And I've also heard people say on different shows in the football side of things, you see more and more coaches that prefer the lifestyle and uh, work schedule of the NFL uh, compared to college football coaching because – of the grind of recruiting. And I think it's for a lot of the reasons that you just displayed. Yeah, absolutely. So we have, of course, that just uh, shocking news about Jay Wright, you know, still a guy that's a hall of famer, obviously two national championships uh, cemented himself uh, with a legacy of building, uh, you know, Villanova really into a new blood 
uh, within the Blue Bloods of college basketball. So definitely applaud him on what was just a great career in a class act, but definitely, you know, saddened to see him uh, retire kind of early. Yeah, I, it just it just doesn't make sense. It makes me think there's something else going on. Mm-hmm. So we will see uh, what happens uh, from there. And if we've heard uh, for sure the last of Jay Wright, if nothing else, maybe he resurfaces on a college game day on ESPN. So, right. <laughs> so Matt, we've got two segments left in our uh, closing minutes here on the Hunger Takes podcast. And our next segment is, of course, the highly anticipated Hungry Take. We're true to the name of the show. We delve into some uh, appetizing food discussion. And Matt, I think that the topic we have tonight, I mean, all these food topics are special to both of us, but I feel like this one is going to be really special for you. And that is because it deals with Taco Bell. Yeah, Joe, I mean, we we don't even have to introduce this segment. All we have to say is Taco Bell Mexican pizza. That's all we have to say. Yeah, the Mexican pizza is returning to Taco Bell. I can't remember the uh, specific date that it's uh, being. What what, what is the specific date that's going to be re-released? Oh, I don't know the specific date. I know it's been off the menu for two years ago, or, or since two years ago. And ironically, if you kind of look back, you'll see that that's when I started going to counseling. Honestly. <laughs> well, I figured you would have like some type of countdown clock to reveal uh, when uh, it's back on the market. So I've been hearing about it all 2022. I read about it in January, and then I'm starting to see some new articles come out. And I can't remember the date. That it comes out, I think it's a little bit closer towards the summer. I may be wrong there, but Joe, if you're telling me that I could possibly celebrate an NBA Finals without LeBron James while eating Mexican pizza, I'm down. I am down any day of the week for that. Where does the Mexican pizza rank as far as the hierarchy for you personally within the Taco Bell menu? Oh, wow, wow. Here, here's the problem. Here's the problem. I don't even, okay, wow. Hold on. I just I just got euphoric thinking about that question, to be honest. That was my so, intention. So there are so many things that Taco Bell does right, okay? And I'm going to name three, and I don't know where you put them. No, I'm going to have to name four. I'm sorry. It, of course, the Mexican pizza, the one that is the most underrated no one talks about is the Burrito Supreme, quite possibly the best burrito anywhere, yeah. okay? Third is going to be, and a lot of people forget about this, it's the extra, extra large chuba, right? It's like this boat that they fill with meat and cheese goodness. It comes out about every three or four years. And then the fourth one is going to be the Doritos Locos Tacos, which, uh, I mean, I wish I had to patent for that. That's probably the greatest marketing thing I've ever seen. No, that, that's a really good one. Um, I like that. And didn't they have like a beefy crunch burrito a few years ago? I really like that too with the Doritos. They, they do. They do. And Joe, just a few things for you chime in. Uh, you got Lily saying crunch wrap, and then, yeah, but she's saying, I don't like the refried beans. The refried beans. And I agree, the cr- crunch wrap is fantastic as well. Yeah, it's really good. And, you know, Matt, I was just thinking about Taco Bell. I think uh, during the NBA Finals, a lot of times if the road team uh, wins a game, they'll say, uh, still a game, uh, still a taco, like everybody gets a taco. But also in baseball, I want to say that uh, in the World Series, a lot of times if uh, somebody steals a base on the base paths, everybody in America gets a free taco. 
And so the question I feel like our listeners will be dying to know the answer to, have you partaken in a free taco that has been won before uh, during a baseball game? No, but that is one of the only good to actually go to a baseball game. That's the only plus is if somebody steals a base to win you a taco. Yeah, I mean, I'll celebrate that. I'll take a hot moment to celebrate baseball over a free taco. Nice, nice. So any other... I see... I see C. McBride says, uh, I love their cheesy gordita crunch. I actually had one of those last Thursday. I treated myself to one. Uh, C. Mac, what I would say is uh, get you a cheesy gordita crunch. Throw a Doritos Locos Tacos in there instead of the regular taco they put in there. That's that's a hack right there, Chico. So if you were going to Taco Bell like right now, as soon as the show ends, like what would be your order right now? That's a fantastic order, Matt. Like I'm just absolutely mesmerized and, and salivating uh, with that uh, recite recitation of the order. And you know, I think about the Crunchwrap Supreme. The Chalupa Supremes to me are a very underrated thing uh, as well that I like. Yeah. Um, I know you've said it on record before, Matt, but I know you do a better job than me of uh, articulating this. You know, if anybody out there that's listening that works for Taco Bell, uh, what do you want to tell them? Any preference on what you would uh, want the tacos or the unlimited cash? kind of like that local place that we like to eat at in Hattiesburg, uh, Keg and Barrel. I feel like everything on the menu to me is something that I can uh, enjoy. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right, Joe. Like, anytime we've gone there, you know, let's say you order a salad because you're in that salad eating light tonight kind of mood. If they were to mess up your order and bring you the Hattiesburg chicken, right, or bring you the, a pizza or a hamburger, you're not going to complain. You're going to be like, no, this is good. I'll take this. Don't worry. Mm -hmm. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. So definitely a winning uh, combination, whatever you order um, there, Matt, with Keg and Barrel. And it sounds like, you know, with Taco Bell, you've definitely sold me on Taco Bell. 
That's right, Joe. And, you know, for that, because we did a special segment on the Hungry Takes uh, podcast tonight about Taco Bell, Taco Bell, don't be scared to reach out. Throw us a huge, fat sack of cash. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, um, in conclusion here tonight, Matt, the last thing, like real quick, kind of rapid fire I want to um, talk about as we wrap up the show tonight is, of course, you know, we're one week away from the NFL draft, which is always, you know, a great event on ESPN. Um, so much fun, really riveting, you know, with that first round on Thursday night. And just kind of curious, how hyped are you for the NFL draft? Oh, super stoked, right? I see the first draft pick is a joke. All right, we'll get into that. Stoked about the NFL draft, Joe. Um, I'm stoked about all the NFL talk out there. And, you know, just real quick for all the listeners, Stay tuned, Joe, because we need to do about a hot two minutes on the Tom Brady situation when we get done covering our NFL topics for tonight. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, save that for a hangry rant installation. How about that? Excellent. I love it. All right. So with the NFL draft, you know, I feel like every time I look at a mock draft board, I see like a revolving door of who's going to be the number one pick. And – I don't really have a huge preference between some of the offensive linemen um, at the top of the draft. I feel like you really can't go wrong. I think I personally like Evan Neal the best out of Alabama. I think he's just a sure thing to be an all-pro left or right tackle for years to come. And if I could get somebody like that to protect my quarterback, that's where I want to start is a foundational piece. But what concerns me, Matt, is when I see teams like drafting third or fourth on the mock drafts where it's like, they might draft somebody in the secondary, like a cornerback, like a, a safety. Um, and I'm like, I don't understand if you have a pick that high in the draft, why you would take a player at that position, because I've never felt like the secondary is uh, specifically just like a franchise-altering uh, draft. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I think secondary is really important, like clearly, right? I think it's becoming more and more important with like the emergence of the Josh Allens, the Patrick Mahomes, those guys, even kind of started with the Drew Brees, like all these guys throw for hundreds of yards. Uh, Joe, I'm like you, offensive lines always there in the first round, but, you know, never get the, the coverage that they deserve. I think the big thing in this draft is it's going to bog it down is, there are really no standout quarterbacks to kind of talk about as a center of attention. And I don't buy the number one draft pick beating the Aiden Hutchinson guy. I mean, when he played in uh, the, the playoff series, he wasn't even the best guy on the field, right? Much less the number one overall draft pick. I just think it's going to be an interesting draft, to be honest with you. Yeah, I would not take him. I would I would personally probably not even take him in the top four or top five. Like, I just do not understand the hype uh, having him as the number one or number two prospect. Um, so, hopefully, you know, for those franchises' sakes and their fans, they will not take him. Like I, like I said, I really think I would prefer an offensive lineman, maybe a defensive lineman, but it'd have to be the right player. And so, you have that, and then you have, of course, the quarterbacks in the draft. And I think we've talked about ad nauseum before, you know, that this is not – a draft where I feel like you want to overreach for a quarterback. You don't want to feel like you're desperate for a quarterback. And what I'm kind of concerned that our team, the Saints, is going to do, since they traded their first-round pick for 2023 to get an extra first-round pick this year, I'm kind of afraid they're going to uh, flirt with overreaching for one of these quarterbacks, and I think that would be a mistake. Yeah, 
Yeah, I think so too. I think uh, who, who's the Pittsburgh quarterback? Oh, forget all of a sudden. Oh, um, Kenny Pickett. Yeah, Kenny Pickett. There we go. So I, I think Kenny Pickett is definitely in their radar, um, especially now that the Steelers went after Mitch Trubisky, right? And so I feel like Kenny Pickett, I wouldn't say he's necessarily a reach. I don't think he's a first-round guy, especially like a top-ten guy. I think if you got him at the back end of the first round or the second round, in a few years you, you might be okay with that. But if you move up in the top five or top ten to get Kenny Pickett, you are making a mistake. I feel the same way about that boy out of Liberty. Um, Joe, not to throw stones at you, I think Matt Corral, I, I think what he did at Ole Miss is cool. He played in Lane Kiffin's offense. I don't think that's going to be a quarterback that's going to uh, propel uh, you to a championship. And then kind of the last thing, because you, you started us talking about uh, secondaries, I think one of the biggest overrated players in the NFL draft is Derek Stingley. I've been watching the boy at LSU for years now, and his first few games, he was a stone-cold killer. Since then, of course, LSU has gone just berserk right with everything going on there i just don't find him to be that good of a defensive back i think he plays off of you know lsu being dbu but truly he's not that good yeah yeah and you know just to kind of finish the point that i was making there like what i'm really trying to say is not necessarily that having players drafted from the secondary is a mistake within within itself i just think that it's a mistake to think that if you're a team drafting in the top five, you can revitalize your franchise with drafting a safety or a cornerback. That's the mistake that I find that these teams are making far too often. Like, I want to find that foundational piece like, you know, either the perfect quarterback or probably preferably an offensive lineman or a pass rusher if I'm drafting in the top five. Yeah, agreed. I want to find a guy who maybe not this year is going to be – a starter, but within the next two or three years. Like, I'll give him a year of growth if I have to. But if you're drafting in that top five spot, you want an impact player within his first three seasons. And I don't see anybody in this draft who can really be that, except for maybe Kayvon Thibodeau, uh, to, to think of really about the only guy that I know of I think would be ready to play. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, I mean, it's going to be so intriguing next week. You know, you expect there'll probably be some unexpected trades, probably some unexpected players, you know, that are drafted earlier in the first round than expected. You know, we'll see uh, who's the surprise maybe that ends up, uh, you know, being somebody that falls further in the first round or even the second round. There's always just those intriguing storylines to follow with uh, the NFL draft. You know, I always tell you, Matt, or I told you recently, that's just like uh, reality television. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, I know that, Matt, you had a hangry rant for us about Tom Brady, so I'll let you have that in our closing minutes here tonight. Joe, I mean, oh my gosh, everybody is just bearing the lead when it comes to Tom Brady. Does no one realize what they are seeing or reading? So here's what happened. Let me lay it out. Tom Brady was headed to the Miami Dolphins to be their next quarterback, but he was going to slide it under the rug, right? And what I mean is, in the NFL Labor Union, you or Players Association, you cannot be a part of ownership and play football, right? So what he was going to do was slide in to the president role of the Miami Dolphins, 
okay, for a year, sit out, and then become their starting quarterback. Now, how he was going to make that work, because he was going to be a shareholder of Miami Dolphins. I don't know if he was going to give up his position, his title, and then retain a minority ownership position, okay? But that was the plan. And before I explain how I know that was the plan, understand the ramifications of what I just said. A team who is under the weather right now, Tom Brady behind closed doors was going to take an ownership position, then a year later say that he is the quarterback. What happens to the value of that franchise if he does that, if you own a portion of it? It goes through the roof. Now, juxtapose that with what happened with Bill Belichick. Does Bill Belichick strike you as the kind of guy who makes mistakes or forgets who he's texting? No, not at all. Here's what really happened from how I read into this. Bill Belichick got wind that Tom Brady was about to take an ownership position in Miami and was going to backdoor his way into the starting quarterback role. In order to solve that problem, because keep in mind, they play the same division, all right? Bill Belichick erroneously texted uh, Brian Flores to say, hey, coach, I heard you got the Giants job. And then when Brian Flores texts back and said, coach, do you think you're talking to Brian Dayball or Brian Flores? Bill Belichick said, oh, my bad. I thought I was talking to Dayball, right? Do you really think Bill Belichick did that by accident? Heck no. Knowing that Brian Flores interviewed for the Giants job and is a stand-up guy because he used to work for Belichick, he knew Brian Flores was going to rat out the Miami Dolphins and let all of this stuff come to light, that there was this back uh, backroom workings to get Tom Brady over there as part of the ownership and to be quarterback. And so what I'm saying is Bill Belichick once again thought two steps ahead of what was going on. And it's funny how it all played out. The story broke with Brian Flores. Tom Brady retires. It doesn't, or excuse me, Tom Brady retires. Story breaks with Brian Flores. Then Tom Brady announces, oh yeah, I'm coming back to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It all lines up perfectly. No, I mean, that that's definitely, Matt, on um, the fascinating theory there. Um, I think about, you know, a couple of other, takeaways uh, within that story and conspiracy you've been hearing about lately, you know, with the possibility that if Tom Brady had ended up, ended up in Miami, uh, the talk about Sean Payton joining him out of retirement and coaching the Dolphins. But here's the thing about both Brady and Payton. Both of them, though, aren't they under contract with um, their former teams, you know, Payton with the Saints, uh, Brady with the Buccaneers. So I guess that would have involved some type of a trade to get both of them to the Dolphins. So, yeah, exactly. Well, so what I figured, what I'm saying was going to happen was Brady was under contract for one more year. Yeah. He either had to be traded by the Bucks or he had to be let go, which is clearly not going to happen, right? So what he was going to do was retire, quote-unquote, go be the president of operations for the Miami Dolphins. Then after that year expires, he can go back to playing football. He has a year to rest. But he stays around football. That was his solution. Then, of course, what you're saying about Sean Payton is 100% spot on. He's got the same situation. The Saints own him for one more year, and it sounds like he is going to sit out that year 
and then probably become the Cowboys head coach here very soon. Yeah, definitely look for him, you know, to uh, not be a complete disappearing act and to resurface somewhere after having that kind of one year to uh, recharge the batteries. But the last question I want to ask you within the scope of uh, Tom Brady, because I think you had just a phenomenal uh, hangry rant, as, as always, here on, uh, on our show. Do you think there's any chance that uh, Brady could still play for the Dolphins if he were to come back in 2023? Yeah, you know, Joe, me and you have talked about this before. I think there is. And I'm not saying that Tom Brady's done. I don't know what's going to end Tom Brady's career. But me and you both talked about it. There's something about age 45 uh, that's really important to him. So I don't know he'll turn 45, I want to say, this season. I don't know if he will play past that, right? Um, I, I don't know how all that plays out. But I, I think that, you know, if he's healthy, he has another good season. I don't see why he wouldn't want to find another place. I don't think Tampa Bay is going to be the place after next season, right? I don't I don't even know if it is the place this coming up season. So if Brady's healthy and can still play, sure, he's going to be looking for other opportunities. Absolutely, and I think you're uh, absolutely spot on with that. And I see uh, JJB says in the chat uh, talking about um, curious how labor agreements move going forward with the retirement comeback deals. I mean, that's definitely a compelling question. And at some point, Matt, we may have to bring on a guest. Um, I have a friend who is a licensed NFL agent and also uh, know some people who have worked like kind of in the realm of uh, sports law. And so maybe at some point we can bring somebody on here to kind of answer that question because it is kind of interesting. You know, where do we reach the point if everybody's going to unretire, you know, should you have to sign something, you know, when you announce your retirement, you know, or are you kind of holding the team hostage you know, just with not knowing what they can do uh, post-retirement. Yeah, I, I think it's going to get very interesting, right? Because you're seeing more and more retired players who are still young, like a Drew Brees, like a Tom Brady, you know, during this two-week retirement that he had. They're becoming coaches. They're becoming sports uh, analysts, right, on TV, on ESPN, on NBC, all those different ones. Uh, they're becoming GMs at a very early age. And I think it is, it, it, at some point, it's going to be very interesting to see how it plays out going forward, where you have a guy like Drew Brees, you know, I understand his injury kind of, you know, destroyed his throwing arm, so to speak. But if it wasn't for his throwing arm, Drew Brees could still be playing in the NFL, you know? So I think it does get interesting because these guys can, can retire, come out of retirement, and then have a whole second career or even go back to where they came from playing on the field. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And we even saw with Breeze, I think he had the contract signed or inked with NBC Sports to join them as an analyst even prior to his final year in the NFL in 2020. Yeah, and, and I just think, Joe, it gets real convoluted because you have a guy like Drew Breeze who could arguably play if he wanted to, okay? He could also be a sports analyst. A year or two as a sports analyst, they're going to start talking about Drew Brees as a head coach somewhere. Think about Tony Romo, right? Think about John Gruden. I mean, Herb Edwards, all of these different guys. Like, So I do think it gets very fascinating for like what's going to happen to their contracts and how many years do they sign for as sports analysts so that, that the Jerry Joneses of the world can't come and get them out of retirement. I think, I think it gets 
kind of interesting as we move forward. It really does, Matt. It's so riveting and just kind of reminds us, like we were talking about earlier, with the soap opera nature of the NFL, just how the NFL does the best job of all the professional sports leagues in America of just staying like within the pulse of the nation like year-round. Like, you know, it can be April, it can be June, and people are fascinated, you know, by talking about the preseason, talking about the draft. I mean, even uh, talking about sometimes who's going to be the announcer for Monday Night Football is an interesting story because it's the NFL. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And the greatest illustration of that, Joe, is what you always say about the NFL draft. Like, the NFL draft is the biggest production known to man, right? They try to act like there's this big debate and ongoing conversation about who the number one draft pick is going to be. And that thing's been decided for months and months. But the way the coverage works and the way the NFL wants it portrayed, it's this minute-by-minute changing landscape, and we know that's not true. Without a doubt, definitely. um, You know, uh, just amazing how uh, the NFL – covers it though and it's going to be so much fun uh, to watch next week um, with the NFL Draft 2022 and Matt I look forward to uh, having our our coverage next week as we uh, talk about the draft and who knows I'll check the date maybe we celebrate with a Mexican pizza sounds good sounds good Um, but a fun episode here tonight Um, really appreciate everybody uh, tuning in it was a lot of fun Um, hope everybody has a great night Matt and I guess we'll talk to everybody soon (laughs) 